Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. Uh, I'm here today with, with Tim Foster. Hello. And with our special guest, Paul Mitchell of Redistricting Partners and of Political Data, Inc., and who does all things redistricting and political strategy-wise. And we're going to talk today about a little bit of everything, I think. I'd like to find out a little bit about how Paul views the general election coming up and any other thing. So, Paul, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. And we should say that you turned 50 yesterday. I know. I yes, turned officially an old that. man in the quarantine. So I don't know if it counts. Guy, you don't look a day over 49, you know? Yeah, Seriously. I just, I think that, uh, I think that when Jody turns 50 next year, we're just going to have to do like a joint birthday and I'm going to get to do my 50 <laughs> over again. No, but it was Are great. you getting those things in the mail from uh, ARP? Not yet. That's what happened to me. God, I got, to, when I, I turned 50 and all of a sudden my mailbox was loaded with flyers from ARP to join, to pay dues, to all the special values they had. I mean, it was unreal. I always associated ARP with old folks, but no, 50 started coming in. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I think there was actually like an interesting lesson here that applies to a lot of what we're experiencing. Uh, and that is that, you know, for my 50th, we had been making all these elaborate plans and there was this like kind of 50th birthday that I wanted, you know? And uh, it's obviously not what I got, um, but in the simplicity of like not being able to do a lot of other stuff, it was like spending time with Jody and Seneca and and uh, they did a really creative birthday gift for me, which was really awesome. And it was just like it was. Can the you birthday can that you I describe needed. that for people? Can yeah, you uh, so, describe that for people who didn't see it? Yeah. So uh, um, who's the the actress that was in Wonder Woman? Uh, she did that video that was like this viral video that came out right at the beginning of the quarantine where they all sang uh, segments of Imagine and it all got kind of slammed together. Um, it was obviously kind of panned by, uh, it was kind of panned by everybody. Uh, but what Jody did was kind of a play on that where she got her son who uh, does uh, filmmaking to put together snippets of all of my friends and a bunch of my friends, not all of them, but like 15 folks singing different parts of uh, a Cat Stevens song from Harold and Maude. And so uh, those who are friends with me on Facebook can see it. Um, I think I've also tweeted it. It's a really just cool video. And it was just like this touching thing. And it's this, the lesson, the takeaway for me with a lot of what I experienced yesterday uh, was, you know, that... Um, when you cut away all the stuff that you can put into a birthday or a celebration and stuff like that, and you focus on just like your family and your friends and being grateful for what you have, it's uh, a lot better than it was. It was really what I needed. It was great. Yeah, and that video was was really amazing. And there was a little, you know, it was a who's who of California politics. There were uh, a few there. thrown in there. Yeah, I guess I talked to Jody afterwards, and there was a. You know, she didn't want to make it too political and she wanted to have more of my friends and some of my friends that aren't yeah. political. But, um, yeah, a couple uh, a couple folks snuck in there. It was actually really And then also I, I also saw people sharing on Twitter some old photos from you. And it's amazing how much you you were the guy with the long hair and the beard for a significant period of time, longer than I would have thought. That's funny. Yeah, no, I... Uh, 
I definitely had the long hair and the beard until, uh, you know, my early 20s, I guess. But now you're distinguished, you know? Now you're distinguished Well, I think the long hair is probably coming back now that... Uh, Bell bottoms came back and left again, you know, so... <laughs> yeah, my long hair, I finally gave up. I was like, well, you know, I'll just start combing my hair again when I can get a haircut. From now on, I just kind of brush it down and keep it out of the way, but that's it. I've given up. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you guys have hair, you know. There, there is that. Yeah. Uh, Paul, so uh, moving right along on uh, on the general auction in November, what are some of the things you're seeing that uh, we should be looking at as well? What are, what are some of the salient points we should be examining right now? If well, any. I think, yeah, I mean, I think first off, uh, I heard the podcast you did with Kim Alexander, and that was awesome. Uh, really kind of exploring uh, the challenges that the state's going to face in ensuring you know broad access to voting and um, a transition in the election system to what will effectively be an all vote by mail system, it'll have some backups of in person voting for people who need assistance. Um, but I think the emphasis really is going to be on making sure that all the counties are set up to mail ballots to every voter um, and reserving those in-person opportunities for people who need them, um, not just people who want to get out for the day and stand in line at a polling location. Do you think the counties are, uh, are doing that in, in a timely way? Are they meeting the deadlines they need to make that to, you know, to get this thing going in November? Or are Yeah, I think the steps are being taken. Um, I think the appropriate steps are being taken both by the state and its leadership to kind of like cajole the counties because that's essentially all they can do um and the individual counties that are going to have to implement this and, and you know we're definitely in a different situation than a lot of other states um where vote by mail hasn't kind of been part of the long-term culture um and so you know we have a huge advantage yeah structure. i saw that there was i saw there was one state i think it might be oklahoma where to vote by mail you have to have uh, you have to have someone sign for it. Uh, a notary public has to sign your ballot if you're doing vote by mail. And I was like, that's insane, especially right now. I know yeah, California used to have many years ago that required. I don't know about the notary, but they had a requirement uh, that you had to be traveling or you had to be unable to get to a polling place. You had for whatever reason, or you you know were disabled or something. But there there had to be a reason. You didn't just apply for a ballot and get something in the mail. You actually had to. You had to say why you had to vote by mail. And over the years, yeah, that has so changed. Yeah, it's called excuse-based voting, and it's common in a lot of the country, and it was how we had it in California for a long time as well. Um, and, you know, we're... I mean, that's just not going to be, you know, a realistic you know, way to run an election uh, if we're in something akin to the kind of stay-at-home orders that we have now or, you know, kind of social distancing and other and concerns people might have about the safety or security of being able to, you know, the health issues around, you know, crowding into a polling place and everybody touching different voting machines and, and, you know, passing pens back and forth or whatever it is when they're signing. And, you know, all this kind of stuff is just probably not conducive to um, the current pandemic. So, um, but, you know, in California, like we've, we've, we've talked about before and uh, we did some writing on this in CA 120, um, you know, 75% of the state in the 2016 election cycle uh, received a vote-by-mail ballot. Um, they were either 
re- requesting to be a permanent absentee voter or they're in a county that um, did vote by mail ballots to everybody in the county or like L.A. County did vote by mail ballots to about 20 percent of the geographic region in addition to the, all the permanent absentee voters. And so 75% of the state's 20 million voters already are getting a ballot. Um, That's a lot better than a lot of the country. And um, when you look at, on top of that, the people who um, have successfully voted by mail in the past and might not have gotten a vote by mail ballot in 2020 primary, um, you're talking 81%. So we're going to have to close the gap on that additional 19% of voters who are going to be moved to voting by mail. Um, but that is a much easier lift than in other states where you know virtually 100% of their voters are going to be voting in a new system. And I'll tell you the most frustrating thing about it for me as I watch this debate is that for years in California, the perception was that vote by mail was older white conservative, you know, therefore it advantaged Republicans and democratic groups and left kind of leaning progressive organizations would always bemoan like we can't go to heavy vote by mail because vote by mail disenfranchises younger people and renters and makes it harder for people to participate who, you know, um, are better at voting in person. And then on the flip side, you have conservative organizations nationally and even on Meet the Press, like not this most recent weekend, but a couple weekends ago, um, you had this suggestion that vote by mail hurts older people and vote by mail hurts more regular voters because they're the ones that are in the pattern of historically always voting at the same location and changing the rules on them you know, will lower their turnout. Um, You know, I mean, you can have, nowadays you'll have people saying that vote by mail is better for old people because they're the only people that actually use the mail. Um, It's just this back and forth with like people trying to um, play out how the vote by mail system is going to advantage or disadvantage different political folks. And I just think that it's a stupid game that everybody should just stop. Um, I think making this is there, system... is there any correlation between voting by mail and turnout? Is there well, the, it's more or less small. the same? Does it it's make much small. of a difference? Yeah, it's a, there's a small correlation, um, and there's a lot of mitigating factors. So you could have a system of heavy vote by mail and maybe see a couple percentage increase in turnout. Um, that might mm-hmm. be across all categories. In fact, in California, you can see the vote by mail voters across all categories did better than poll voters in terms of their turnout. The challenge is, is that when, when you create a high hurdle for vote by mail, meaning you have to like maybe apply every election cycle or always have an excuse or do this extra step, that population that overcomes that hurdle is always going to be higher turnout because they have already shown kind of the requisite interest and ability to kind of overcome these little hurdles, they're going to show up on election day. Um, When you give everybody a ballot, you're not conferring that same high turnout to just everybody when you're giving everybody a ballot. But it does have some kind of net positive, small. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just, I feel like the we should have like a debate about election administration. What's the best day way to handle 
late ballots? What's the best way to handle signatures that don't match? What's the best way to ensure security of the ballots? There's all these things that we can be having conversations about, but like making it into a partisan, uh, you know, who's going to benefit thing. It just, it seems to me like at best, it's just a wash. And well, it, so it was really interesting yeah. talking to Kim Alexander and she said that one out of every hundred mail-in ballots is rejected, mm-hmm. which to me is a staggeringly high amount. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just shockingly high. And I, I think that's something that we really need to work on, uh, you know, because that could that could certainly skew a race. We have many many races in California that are are that close. Yeah. So that's you know there are a couple things to, you know, if when you unpack that, and I think even you mentioned this on the on the conversation you were having with Kim, is that some of those might be because somebody mailed in two ballots or because they mailed in a ballot and you know they didn't think it was going to get there, so they went and voted at the polling place, you know. And so there are different reasons that might be like more necessary for why that ballot was not counted. Then there are the other ones that are not necessary, like when somebody's signature doesn't match or when it gets in too late. And there's laws that the state has to try to mitigate that, where we allow people to, um, you know, sign their ballot after the election, up until a month after the election, effectively, um, if they can if they can be told by the county, hey, your signature had a problem. They can then verify the signature with like a postcard and get it all to count. That's great. Um, ballots sometimes can arrive late, even if they're mailed on time. And in California, they even arrive to the wrong counties oftentimes. And so creating Yeah, I think she said that, that was the most fixed. common reason. I think yeah, she said is. that that was the most common reason that most that they arrive late. So I, in this 20 general, we're probably going to extend the... Election Day plus three rules to allow ballots to receive and be received in later as long as they have a postmark on time. And then there's ballots that are mailed too late. Like somebody realizes on Wednesday they hadn't mailed their ballot, they try to mail it in. That one shouldn't count. So, you know, there's not, I think there's differences between those that are not counted for legitimate reasons and those that are counted, not counted for kind of illegitimate process reasons where they should be counted. The, um, that's up to the state to decide, isn't it? Uh, the the the, Fed, the the constitution i guess decides when we're going to hold the election it's up to the state to decide how so yeah, we can I mean, decide our, if we want to do mail and we can do that if we don't want to we can you know whatever it's but it's our choice yeah. right states decide and counties implement is kind of the general rule of it all um, so you know that's that's how this will happen around the country when you get to that 1% by the way Tim, one of the things that is always um, you know shocked me is the high rate of ballots not counting, whether it's 1%, 2%, 3%, whether it's higher for certain demographics, what the reason is. You know, if, as an example, our ATM transactions had a 1% error rate, there would be a civil war in this country. Like, that would become be the downfall of our entire financial system if we had a 1% error rate, that one out of every one of your ATM just... uh, deposits just didn't go and you lost the money you could never get it back like that's just crazy um so there are things that we need to do to try to make sure that all you know votes that should count are counted and now for, for are you, there states are there states that are all vote mail uh, is washington is state is one washington is um i'm not sure about oregon um colorado 
they sometimes call Colorado an all-vote-by-mail state, but it's most, more like the vote center counties in California. Um, the vote center counties in California have been modeled after, after Colorado in that they mail ballots to everybody, but Washington's more kind of strict on, you know, really reduced in-person options and almost entirely vote-by-mail. And what's their turnout compared to ours? Um, I'd have to unpack it, and I think that the different you, when you get into a kind of like what's their turnout questions, there become all these different questions about um, you know how wide is their voter registration? Like California's voter registration is kind of deeper than most other states because we have the DMV process, we have automatic re-registration when you move. Um, there's a lot of things that we've done to increase the percentage of eligible voters in California that are registered. And then other states might have kind of a tighter registration rules. And, and so com- it's sometimes hard to compare apples to apples across states. Got also, it. you have to look when you're comparing across states, like what is the demographic? What's the socioeconomic kind of situation of and what's the age groups and, and different things that impact, you know, turnout in addition to just the election management system, you know? The percent of registered voters just rose dramatically uh, since 2016. Oh, yeah. It was like 72%, and now it's, as of February, I think the figures were 81, almost 82%. I mean, almost, we're at a higher, higher rate of eligible voters in California since women, African Americans, and, you know, even 18 to 21-year-olds were able to vote. So, I mean, we're talking... Yeah. Like, you'd have to dig through historic records from the 19-teens to, you know, over 100 years ago to find a period in which we had a greater percentage of our eligible voters uh, registered. And back then, the eligible voters were roughly white men. Yeah. Well, so it's, uh, showed, um, it's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, one million... This uh, Secretary of State said between 2016 and 2020... The eligible vote went up about one, maybe less than one million, under one million, mm-hmm. seven hundred thousand or so, twenty-four point seven million to twenty-five point three million, approximately. But the percentage of registered voters went up almost three million. So yeah. the proportion of those registering really just kind of amazing. It's really no, super it is. High. It is amazing. Do you yeah, guys, I mean, is that part of a? Is that I don't know. Is that partly? The presidential rate, the presidential candidates, the whole presidential scheme. No, it's it's almost entirely, you know, it's when we talk about a lot of this stuff, we talk about two different types of factors. You have kind of organic factors, which are the things you're suggesting, like the presidential races and the political arguments that are happening and and how much people are engaged. And then there's the mechanical pieces, which is, you know, how are people registering to vote? The creation of the online voter registration in 2012. The expansion of Motor Voter in 2018, uh, the you know the fact that now when you when when me and Jody and my dad all moved from uh, Midtown Sacramento out to the Burbs, um, none of us actually re-registered, and it was because we didn't know how to. I kind of just didn't want us to, and uh, we were all automatically re-registered by the county because of the process that they have. And I wanted to see that process in action. And we all got little postcards saying, your registration's being changed. Let us know if this is incorrect. 
And uh-huh. that's what happened. It was great. And so like that kind was of stuff. Is this still Sacramento County or were you in still Sacramento County. This is still Sacramento. Yeah. Yeah, still Sacramento, but it would also work county to county. It, the the processes we have to keep voter registrations updated um, have created a much cleaner voter file and added to this higher number of registered voters. Because if you moved in the old days, um, one of two things happens. Either your voter registration sits there and it's essentially dead weight because it's not an effective registration anymore, but the county doesn't know it, so it just sits there like in perpetuity. Or B, they figure out that you moved and they take you off. And so that's one less voter on the voter file. Nowadays, what they do is they say, oh, this person moved, this person moved here, and the state says re-register them, they re-register them, send them a postcard, say, hey, we re-registered you at this address, let us know if there's any problems. And it's contributed to a cleaner voter file and a higher total registration. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's really helped shape our elections. Hey, Paul, how does, uh, I know we chatted about this a little before, but how does the census, issues involving the census play into the in, into California's political landscape? I'm thinking the redistricting mainly. Yeah, but, I uh, mean, there's, yeah. The so there's, you're looking at? So, A, kind of like the big picture of it, is that the total census and the number of Californians relative to the number of people in other states are going to become the issue within what they call apportionment. And that is as you dole out the different congressional seats, uh, in order to try to create this fairness, there's these calculations uh, to determine how many congressional seats that each, sta- each state gets. And based on the most, most current estimates, California is set to lose a congressional district to go from 53 to 52. Now, if we have a really good census here, and maybe they have a really bad census in Texas, um, we could end up getting that 53rd Congressional District back. If they have a great census in Texas and a great census in a lot of the rest of the country, and then a really poor census here, we could lose two congressional districts and be at 51. So there's this range of 51 to 53 congressional districts we're going to have, and that's kind of the biggest first macro thing about the census. Is there a partisan benefit to anybody? Uh, you know, if we the fewer districts means it's better for REAPs or it's better for Dems or it doesn't make much difference? Or do we no, see any I balance mean, it's, changing in the way our delegation? You know, our delegation is so skewed Democratic. I mean, much further than than our actual total registration numbers would suggest we should be. Um, so, um, you know, the Republicans, will they gain a seat or two after the next redistricting? I think that that... That most people would suggest they're probably set to gain back something in redistricting in 2022. Remember, in 2012, the redistricting came, and then right on the heels of redistricting was a presidential election cycle, traditionally better for Democrats. Now in 2020, it's going to come right on the heels of a gubernatorial election cycle, traditionally better for Republicans. And so in 2022, we'll likely have some kind of... a um, you know, uh, we'll have a big shakeup, I think, in all these districts, and it should provide some yeah. opportunities to Republicans to take back some seats in the legislature and Congress. Um, how much? You know, I was talking to your, to um, your colleague. Uh, to I was talking to Matt Rexrode, and he had mentioned that this proposal to delay the census report, the final data in the census report. This is a federal, a Trump administration to delay it by 120 days. Yeah, it could have a ripple effect down the line and compress the amount of time 
that you have to draw congressional to draw district boundaries and where before you might have several months now it could be compressed into because of our deadlines with our commission in california it could be compressed into a couple of weeks which is basically impossible to get the data and then draw districts in in two weeks mm-hmm. is that something that's realistically going to happen when we get the final data or is you think this is going to go the house would never approve it anyway presumably but what do you think well, I don't know that the House isn't going to approve it. I think the House is probably going to approve this delay in the census. I think it's to everybody's best interest to do that, given this you know, pandemic, the inability of the census to do the in-person canvassing they need to, and a lot of other kind of issues that are kind of fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you're right that if nothing changes in the law, uh, that would mean that potentially we could be in a situation where the data comes out July 31st and two weeks later the state has to have all their lines drawn, which is um, kind of ludicrous. Um, I don't think that would happen. Now, um, there is a potential that the state could try. They still have time. The legislature could try to um, you know, make a, do a constitutional amendment, uh, maybe a cleanup of a bunch. There might be 20 or 30 things in other different policy areas where deadlines need to be extended or other non, non-substantive policy changes need to be made in order to accommodate uh, kind of the, the shifting of everybody's time frames due to this crisis. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see some movement to, um, you know, might be like an omnibus package of, of different uh, date changes in the law yeah. to allow for everything from uh, the March primary in 2022 to be moved to June, um, which is a Tom Umberg bill right now, um, and then maybe yeah. a shifting in the redistricting timelines. Paul, just one last question. For you as a political strategist, is uh, this all change your life at all, politically and professionally, working out of your house and being, uh, you know, sheltering in place? Instead of out, out and about and going to all the meetings and all this yeah, stuff, I mean, does this I think change you at all? Same as everybody else in the sense of like endless Zoom calls and, you know, even when those people like me who do work at home a lot, um, now it's filled with kid and other people and other folks trying to get space and do work. And um, I mean, I'm literally recording this in this little closet that my daughter has filled with stuffed animals. Um, not my normal work environment. Um, hey, the audio and, is perfect, so you're deadening the sound. That's good. Yeah, that's what I figured. But the uh, um, in terms of campaigns, I think there are going to be obviously some huge challenges for a lot of campaigns that are going to have to retool where so much of traditional campaigning is in-person canvassing, you know, the walking precincts, the getting volunteers, the the organizing meetings, the you know, Democratic and Republican Party conventions and, and you know, that structure that relies so heavily on kind of one-on-one kind of in-person interactions. Um, and a shift to, uh, you know, other ways of reaching out. But one of the things that's just surprising to me is that, you know, we didn't ever plan for this pandemic. But the tools that we have with, you know, Zoom and obviously our internet access and the ability to quickly transition school from, you know, on campus to, to distance learning, 
Um, yeah. It's kind of amazing. We're very fortunate that this struck at a point where we had all this. What's really funny is I was actually on the distance learning task force for the California Community Colleges in 1994. And back then there was this idea that like some education could be done by the internet, you know, using FTP sites or, or downloading documents from wherever. It was just kind of nuts. Um, the, uh, um, the fact is, is that we were almost in a way prepared for this pandemic and a lot of the technology we have has made it a much smoother transition. The, um, I think the same is true for campaigns. For years, we've been developing more tools for um, you know, people to reach out to voters digitally using data from the voter file, tying it directly to Facebook and other digital ad buys and allowing campaigns to target like that. Um, the phone banking, not just phone banking like it used to be where you have, you know, 30 sweaty college kids uh, and an order of pizza in a packed room making phone calls for hours. But where now we send people phone lists that they can do the phone calling from their home and, you know, not have to be in like a big sweat, sweaty kind of packed room. Um, yeah. You know, the, the technology... Um, of campaigns has changed and you know the use of email is another example uh emails have never had as good open rate as they have during this crisis and campaigns are being able to effectively use use email so at pdi a lot of our focus has been okay uh, not just how do we retool for this crisis but how do we you know remind campaigns that like you've had these tools all along and they work great for kind of this uh situation we're all in so um, I think the campaigns will be able to pull their, pull off their work pretty uh, seamlessly, even in this kind of crisis. Now, what sure. is going on? So, talking about the campaigns, there, you know, obviously the presidential campaign is sort of on hold right now. But what's going on with like California one twenty five? I mean, California twenty five. They should be right in the midst of everything, but it seems like it's kind of on hold. Which one? Uh, isn't it CA twenty five? Oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so yeah, I was I, when you said California twenty five, I thought you were I thought you were thinking about something statewide. You meant congressional district twenty five, and yeah, that race sure, is yeah. ongoing. Um, we're right now tracking the. We have an absentee ballot tracker up for that race and for the Senate district race, the twenty eighth, and um, the votes are rolling in. There's, it's really interesting. Like, what are the dynamics of those races going to be? Uh, are people going to vote? Actually, CA twenty five is coming right up, isn't it? Like next week, or that's yeah, it's that's like, what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's uh, not next week, but it's isn't it like eighteen days or something like that? It's like um, the fifteenth or something. I know it's in May. Yeah, so I think it's yeah. like eighteen days till that. But I mean, election. that's in a normal world, we would all be obsessed <laughs> with this. I mean, I don't know why because it's not going to change <laughs> really change anything. But this would be something yeah. that Capital Weekly would be absolutely be covering and talking about, and. You know, I'm an obsessive Twitter watcher like the rest of us. I haven't even seen a peep about it on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true you know. for everything. I mean, it's almost like I think whenever I watch the news, like what news are we missing? Because, you know, we have wall-to-wall coronavirus coverage on every network, and we're not talking about anything else. And you know that if there wasn't a coronavirus, we'd be having full network broadcasts about yeah. something. God knows what it would be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the world, there, there are a lot of news things happening and a lot of stuff happening in politics that can't get any bandwidth because 
Um, people just don't have an appetite for that news right now. So yeah, the, the congressional district race is ongoing. All the voters in that district know about it. They're getting mailers. They're getting phone calls. They're returning their ballots. And um, it'll be really interesting to see who participates. Um, I don't think that anybody can tell you right now what that's going to look like. Right now, so far in the ballots returned, it is skewing very Republican in the in the first ballots returned. But we've had this conversation before, and it's true in almost every election, that that first wave is older homeowner, more conservative voters, and it's to be expected. So we'll see what ends up happening in this race. Great. Well, on that happy note, uh, talking about older voters, Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for your time. As usual, this has been very fun and informative. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Sure, thanks. And for- this is um, this John Howard saying goodbye this time. We'll see you next time around. Thanks again. Hey, thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.